welcome to 1M1, the movie music podcast. I'm Alex Steiermark, the creator and host of the show. As you know, this podcast is a series of one-on-one conversations with the leading creators of music for film, TV, and games working today, composers, filmmakers, and songwriters. But from time to time, we're also going to have conversations with folks that work in other aspects of music for film. Today's episode is a conversation with music editor Missy Cohen. Missy is one of the top music editors in film and television, and she's also very good at talking about what it is that she does. I think you're going to find this episode to be very informative. I hope you enjoy it. So, Missy Cohen, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. We've known each other a long time. Long time. Uh, well, before 2001. I think 2001 was the first time we worked together. On the Laramie Project. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And of course, you, you do come in and speak to my class every year, which I love at Columbia University. I look forward so. to it every year. It's, it's a fantastic workshop that you do. And uh, the talent that comes out of there is pretty incredible. Well, you do a nice job with them. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you're a part of it. Thank you. Let me just start out by saying... You're an award-winning music editor. You've worked on so many movies, so many television shows. You're really at the top of the game, one of the best in New York. Thank you. And um, I'm very curious to, to, A, give folks an insight into how you got to doing what you're doing. And also, I think music editor is one of those jobs that a lot of people don't even know necessarily what that is. It sounds like someone's editing music, but of course it involves so much more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think you've been doing it long enough to also see a lot of changes in the technology yeah. and how that uh, has affected what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. Um, and I have a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Let's go back to the, to the very beginning. I know that you, did you study film in school? I studied film in school. I had originally gone to Hofstra University because at the time they had the most state-of-the-art television equipment uh, on the East Coast. And I knew I wanted to stay on the East Coast. So I went with the objective of learning how to be a television director. I, this is what I wanted to do. Um, I knew from a very young age that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so when it was time for me, I got past my 101 communication classes, and when it was time for me to take my first television class, I found out that that class was closed, and it was going to throw off my whole schedule as far as finishing my degree in four years. So my advisor suggested I take an intro to film class. It was a core class that everybody had to take, whether they were a radio major, TV major. And I had a wonderful teacher uh, who I'm still friends with to this day, and it changed everything. Uh, and I learned about what a medium shot was, learned what a close-up was, learned what a tilt, pan. We talked about black and white versus color. We she showed us everything. Uh, and I just absorbed every bit of it, and I realized this is what I like to do. I have a photography background. I've been a photographer since I was 12. So this actually spoke to me a whole lot more than television did. And I stayed with film. My parents were not happy because they sent me to the state-of-the-art television school to join a very small film department. But uh, I took a lot of theory and uh, took a little bit of production. And that led to my final film that I did with Betty Gordon, who is a film director here in New York. Uh, she was my professor for several classes, and I made my last film with her. And she took notice that I was really enjoying the sound editing portion of my 
uh, my film. So she said, I have a friend who is getting ready to do the sound edit on a feature, and it's going to be in New York, and you're graduating soon, you would have to move here, are you down? And I said, yeah, let's, let's, you know. So she put in the word. Three weeks later, I found out I got the job, moved to New York with 500 bucks and a duffel bag full of clothes, and um, the film turned out to be The Silence of the Lambs. I was wow. working with uh, Skip Leavesay, uh Academy Award-winning sound editor, sound designer, mixer, uh, and nobody knew this film was going to be what it was going to be. Um, but I learned so much being an apprentice sound editor. I, I realized I knew nothing. Mm. I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, so everything I learned there, I did not learn in school. I gained an appreciation in school, but I didn't learn the nuts and bolts of... I, I basically did on my film. I mean, I was cutting things in sync and sound effects and yada yada. But I never quite knew how to prep a film, how to take it from editing all the way to the mix. Uh, so just watching these guys work was an education that I never could have gotten in school. Mm -hmm. So unbelievably valuable. Mm -hmm. And everything I do now has stacked upon that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, you, so I know that you did, you worked in this but with sound editing, so sound right. effects, dialogue. Right, ADR, Foley. ADR, yeah. Foley. Yeah. Um, and then you found your way into the music part of it. Yeah, I would say in the, I mean, music has always been an interest of mine. My aunt and uncle were both vice presidents of their respective departments uh, at Columbia Records, Epic Records. Uh, so my aunt and uncle would send me records starting at a very early age. I think the very first record they sent me, I was either four or five years old, and I had heard Saturday in the Park by Chicago on the radio, and I liked it. And mm -hmm. my mom told my aunt that I liked the song, and then, you know, a week later, the record showed up. And I couldn't read when I was four, so my mom drew an orange rectangle on the side of the record that I would put on if I wanted to listen to it if I woke up before they did. <laughs> um, and it just continued. I mean, I had everything from Chicago to Blondie, Patti Smith. I mean, I, I had a great record collection before I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I have them to thank for that. You, you know, so, I mean, music has been very important to me. So in the mid-90s, when I started to realize that there was a whole music department that went into post-production of a film, I didn't, I, I guess I never thought about how it got there. I, I guess it just was just something that was just there. Um, so I segued, segued, did you get what I did there? Um, I segued into music editing, becoming an assistant music editor, and I worked with some really great New York music editors. I've worked with, you know, Dan Lieberstein, I've worked with Todd Cassow, Nick Ratner, Susanna Perrick, uh, to name a few, uh, where they really helped me understand not just technically how music gets put into a film, but aesthetically when to use music, when not to use music, um, to gauge the scope and scale of a film so the music doesn't overwhelm or disappear against it, um, how to play against something, how to play with something, how to be subtly manipulative uh, with my musical choices. And I, it, this whole new world opened up to me. Um, it all clarified, it all, and, working with composers and learning what they needed us to do for them in order to make their job possible, easier, uh, how to organize, how to keep good records, how to listen uh, during spotting sessions, how to listen during recording sessions and take notes, um, how to use my own ears, how to flex my own listening. 
And if I think I heard a clam in bar 71, I would make a note of it and then bring it up if nobody else did. And then, you know, sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong, but they, it really helped me learn. Gary Chester, uh, an engineer, was a really big help in, in helping me learn how to listen mm -hmm. uh, when he worked at the Edison. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had several, we recorded Laramie there. Yeah. And I, he, he made me feel comfortable enough to say what I think I heard or my opinion without being judged or without being laughed at. And, and so I, I really felt confident around him. So let's go back for a second uh -huh. um, and talk about, you, you covered the whole range of activities that a music editor is involved with. Mm -hmm. Let's go back and just be a little more specific. Break them out, yeah. Because um, at its most fundamental, the music editor is the person that is literally physically editing the music against the picture. Correct. But there's so much more to what you do than right. that. So um, let's go back to how you're brought into a project what, what and um, who brings you in because sometimes it's because of an existing relationship you have with right. a composer other times it might be a director who wants you right let's go let's talk about that uh, yeah sometimes it's also the post supervisor post supervisor will reach out and say we're doing a film for Fox Searchlight here are the dates are you interested slash available and if I am interested slash available I say sure uh, if things are done in order and done properly, usually I'm brought in fairly early. I'm definitely brought in earlier on television shows than I am with films. Mm -hmm. uh, television shows I'm brought in while they're shooting because the editors are cutting while things are being shot because it's rolling episodes and it, things just have to get in, get cut, and go out. Uh, so I will take an editor's cut and I will, and, and this goes for film too, it's a music editor's job to provide a temporary score, a temp score. Uh, which is basically taking pieces of music from other films, other sources, and applying them in creating a score. This is before the composer comes on sometimes. Um, and basically score the film with existing material. Uh, if we know who the composer is, and maybe that composer hasn't started yet, the first thing I will do is go to the, that composer's scores and see which scores might fit this project. You know, they hired this person for a reason, uh, for an, an aesthetic, a sensibility, whatever. So first thing I'm going to do is go to that person's library and, and start pulling from there. And usually I'm working with the director slash producer slash showrunner and the editor at this point. And this is what's known as the temp score. The temp score, yes. <laughs> the which dreaded is temp the score. The dreaded temp score because uh, it's dreaded because uh, a lot of times, you know, the, the director slash showrunner live with this score for a long time if it's a film. Uh, and we find that they have fallen into temp love, which means that no matter what music you try to put in a certain spot, the temp score is always going to be the score they refer to they reference and that they just love. So yeah, the temp score, it's a, it's a very important step. It helps us learn where we want music, where we don't want music, what kind of music. Uh, does it need a tempo? Does, is it sort of simple? Is it legato? I mean, what is it? You know, what, what piece of music, what kind of music is gonna help this scene and be a part of the score for the whole film? Themes. It helps us establish where certain themes are going to go. Um, there's there's many uses for it, but when uh, when all is said and done, 
Sometimes composers want to listen to it. Sometimes they don't want to listen to it. Some even have it written in their contract that they will listen to it once and they will never listen to it again. And it's never to be spoken of again. It's, uh, it's an interesting process, but it's a very educational process. And it mm-hmm. becomes very necessary because our spotting notes come off of that temp score. You know, we started it here. We ended it here. It needs to do something at this point and this point. So the point. spotting notes are where after that or at some point, maybe right. even if there's no temp score. Right. It's a part of the process where you're going through the film, right? Yes. With the director. Yes. Composer. Sometimes editor, the editor, yeah. music supervisor, sometimes yes, and and deter- and and creating a list of notes, correct, basically, and then it's my responsibility or the music editor's responsibility to present those to anybody who wants them, but they're mainly for the composer, basically saying, here's a cue, here's its code number, here's its temporary title, which usually wind up uh, lasting throughout the whole project. You know, so the the composer can say, okay, I've got seven cues in reel one, I've got five cues in reel two, I've got 13 cues in reel three. And by cues, we mean separate pieces of music. Separate pieces of music, right. Some of them might fall into theme families, you know, there might be a love theme, there might be an action theme, you know, whatever, it, whatever is necessary. Uh, and these notes, so in the spotting session, it's my job to really listen to the room, take notes and present those. So not only do I present a time code in and a time code out, I try to provide what the action is for that time code coming in, the action coming out. And then there's a, at the software I use, there's a comment section. And that's where I put everybody's notes. I use people's initials, who said what. And then it's up to the composer to really look at those notes. I try to be as succinct, as clear, and in a time order as I can. Um, and just be as detailed as I can. And the composer can decide what he or she wants to use and what he doesn't want to use. Um, but at least it's there. And that's when the composer's creative process takes over. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so then the composer's writing the music. At that point, you're liaising with the composer in a Correct. way between, you're sort of the liaison between uh, the film production right. and the composer. Right. Uh, assuming that there's, I mean, oftentimes the music supervisor is also working with the composer, but, right. but you're sort of, at that point, you become the composer's right-hand person. Right? Absolutely, absolutely, because they're going to be still cutting while my composer is still working. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, uh, it's very rare that you get a locked picture and then hand that over to the composer, and no changes are going to be made. It's very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in that case, I will call the composer and I'll say, "I just got wind that a new real one is coming down the pike. The changes are going to be minor. Uh, I'm going to assess the cut." and let you know if you should keep writing against what you have and it will just be a matter of conforming or putting everything into sync against the new picture or if any cues are affected that I can't fix by cutting that you're gonna need to compose a, a, a patch basically. Mm-hmm. You know, So yeah, they, they rely on me to keep them as up to date as possible. It's my job to keep them up to date. Uh, it's my job then for them to send me sketches or demos uh, of the cues that they're writing for the film. I will put them into my Pro Tools, and after I get a good amount, I'll say to the composer, can I show these, or would you rather I wait for a full reel? You, you know, we, we talk about when is the time to start showing the material. Mm-hmm. Then I'll get the editor, I'll get the director, the music supervisor, myself, and whoever, and we look at the sketches. Mm-hmm. And the demos run 
from everything from being the old-fashioned piano demo uh, to a fully realized uh, electronic version of of it. And it's gotten to the point where it's almost expected for a fully realized demo to come in. Mm -hmm. Most composers have the capability to do it, and therefore it has become expected. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times directors, especially new directors, can't extrapolate what this cue will sound like with a full orchestra unless they hear a mock-up of a full orchestra. Mm -hmm. Or this lead line is going to be played on a saxophone, but the composer is a guitarist, and so he's playing it on the guitar, mm -hmm. and it's hard for them to extrapolate. So um, it's expected now. So we look at those. We take notes. I send notes back, and the notes can be like everything from I love this cue, don't change a thing, to I need the tempo to be faster in the first half, and then when this uh, change happens, I need it to be less dramatic. It, you know, it's it's very uh, it's a lot of back and forth, and it's not often when a composer will hit it first time out of the gate. It's it's collaborative like any other part of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of creative back and forth. Um, and it's music is a very subjective thing. And what the composer thinks is the best way to serve this scene with this piece of music, the director may say, I hate the saxophone. I don't ever want to hear a saxophone in this score. Whether the composer thinks that that's the proper instrument to use for that moment or not, it's all subjective. And everybody brings their own ideas and their own baggage, their own past, their own relationship with music to the scoring process. Mm -hmm. So it is going to be a lot of back and forth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and at a certain point, you're also on the receiving end of feedback and thoughts from the director or the editor, and then you are in the situation where you've got to now sort of re reinterpret that for the composer. I've got to be the messenger. Mm -hmm. um, I've been shot so many times <laughs> as the messenger. It's just been, I've got holes all over me. But um, yeah, no, this is my job, and, and you know, these spotting notes are sort of an ever-changing beast. And I keep track of what's been approved, what's in process. If we're licensing cues, I keep track of what's been licensed, what is in the works, um, possible replacements if we can't license this cue. It, it's a lot of clerical stuff that I do. Mm -hmm. um, I was telling somebody, you know, what I do is almost like it's 10% editing and 90% organization, mm -hmm. interpersonal clerical, mm -hmm. you know, I have to do cue sheets at the end of the job where I make a list of each piece of music, who wrote it, what the publishing information is, who owns the master, all that stuff, how long the cue is, what kind of usage it is, the time codes, which that became a thing, I don't know when. So there, there's a lot of, and I have to keep it all together. The director's not gonna keep it together. The composer's gonna keep it together as much as he or she needs to do his or her job. And mm. it's really, I mean, if I'm gonna liaise between the director and the composer, I gotta know what I'm talking about. And mm. I gotta have it, mm -hmm. uh, have it very clear mm -hmm. and very up to date. Mm -hmm. So then uh, once the mock-ups are all done, approved mm -hmm. and everything, mm -hmm. and you're ready to go into the studio, so then at that point you're very much involved with the recording process as well. Correct. Uh, but my main job is really, again, to take notes. I'm really there to listen to the room um, because there's a lot of cues, there's a lot of takes for each cue, and down the line after we get everything, we're going to need to comp takes. So for instance, the first part of the first cue sounds great, but the last doesn't sound so good, so we might want to go to take three of that same cue. And in essence, we're cutting and pasting these two pieces together to make a good cue, to, to, to get a fully musical, you know, all of the 
uh, intent was there, everything is played the way the composer liked it. Uh, so it's my job to say, first part of the first cue, great. At bar 71, we're gonna switch over to take three. And then for the last chord, we're gonna go over to take five. So when it comes time to comp these cues, occasionally I'll do it, sometimes the engineer will do it. Uh, we know what pieces very quickly we need to use, so we're not listening through everything and wasting studio time that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then at that point, the score gets mixed. Uh, after everything gets laid down, we have a couple sessions where we mix it, depending on how large the, the score is. It's mixed down into stems, and I'm given those stems, and that ultimately is what I cut in to take to the final mix. So you're there for the final mix as well. You're basically seeing the, the you're the person who's really handling, in a, in a way, the right. music all the way through to the very end. You're Correct. From the beginning, through the recording, to the... Right. It's like I see it from its inception all the way through its birth, basically. And then, you know... So you're there at the years. mix. You've prepared the tracks, presumably. I prepared the tracks. I know what tracks I have. I know... We're talking about the final film Final, mix. final film mix. I bring... So, yeah, there's two mixes, basically. There's the music mix, where... It's everything is balanced out, everything is EQ'd, everything is sounding like the piece of music that the composer intended when he or she wrote it. Mm -hmm. This is this is my brainchild. There's no dips for dialogue, there's nothing like that. It is a flat piece of music as if you were gonna put a CD on and take a listen. Mm -hmm. It's a piece of music. Uh, the stems are basically each instrument or each set of instruments that comprise the full mix that you hear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there might be a drum kit stem, there might be a first guitar stem, separate second guitar tracks, stem, basically. separate tracks. Mm -hmm. And this gives, this is not for the final mixer to remix the cue. This mm -hmm. is, that is not the intention at all, but it is the intention, in, with the intention of giving the mixer, the final mixer, some control because there might be an instrument that is in the same frequency range as a very quiet piece of dialogue. So he, the mixer might need to EQ or just lower that tiny little part. And if everything was together, you'd have to lower the whole cue, which is a drag. Mm -hmm. But there are ways to sort of use microsurgery to really carve out around dialogue without uh, ruining the integrity of the cue. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I'm there and I can say on track five, you'll find your drone stem. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe that's what's conflicting and they'll look at it and they'll say, okay, so they take down track five a little bit or they do whatever they do. And the rest of the queue is left intact. Mm -hmm. And I'm there to just, again, I'm there to help facilitate, let the mixer know, here's what I've got. Um, you know, we don't really do cue sheets anymore, where the, the mixer used to have sheets and sheets of pieces of paper that would tell them where a cue would come in, and now they just look at it on a Pro Tools screen, mm -hmm. on a computer screen. So um, I'm there to help make things, you, you know, basically my setting up my sessions and being at the mix, is it's all for the final mix. I basically work for the final mixer. My job is to get everything in a cohesive, clear, understandable, way so the mixer will spend the least amount of time figuring out what I've brought and the most amount of time figuring out how it needs to settle into the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in, in the course of your career, you've gotten to work with so many great composers. I know you got to work uh, with Marvin Hamlich, who's mm -hmm. 
when you know one I'm sure one of your favorite experiences it was the best job I've ever had uh, you know this this was a guy who could barely remember my name he was notoriously bad with names uh, and I went for my first interview with him and at the end of the interview he, he said what's your name again I said it's Missy and I went home and I cried I was so upset and what for what film was that that was for the informant mm-hmm. that was a Steven Soderbergh film mm-hmm. and Marvin was hired uh, to do the score based on his score for I believe it was take the money and run and maybe also bananas uh, they attempt with that mm-hmm. and that they had pulled them off a of VHS and and you know loaded them into their avid and used these to tempt the film mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty brave mm-hmm. um, and you know Marvin was a great example of a guy who he didn't even turn in demos he would record he, there was a, a radio shack tape recorder sitting on his piano to record demos but he mm-hmm. just had Steven come over and, and he played the piano for him mm-hmm. um, but I was set up in his dining room right behind his piano, so every day I looked at his back. Um, <laughs> and if I turned my head 90 degrees to the right, I would see his three Oscars staring at me mm-hmm. uh, from his fireplace mantle. Um, but, you know, over the time, uh, I, I spoke to his wife, and I, I, I mean, I'm working out of the guy's apartment. I've seen him in his robe. I've seen him in his pajamas, whatever. Um, but he's still like this intimidating presence. And I said to his wife, I said, I don't know if Marvin likes me and she said he loves you he's intimidated by you and I said intimidated by me why he said because you know how to use a computer so once I found that out and we had a little heart-to-heart he bought lunch one day we sat in the kitchen and it turns out he had done some time at Hofstra also Uh so we talked about Hofstra he lived in an apartment building a block away from my apartment building so once we had that talk everything was was solid um, and so I was basically brought on to run click tracks for him. He doesn't use synthesizers. I mean, this is something that composers now do by themselves, mm-hmm. for themselves. And at the very worst, they have an assistant there to help them with mm-hmm. that. So Marvin would sp- spent two months writing this score in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would say, he would say, go, stop, go, stop. And I would start and start the click track. And he would say, tap out this tempo. And he would tap on the piano and would get the beats per minute that he wanted and he'd say okay start it here you know I just did whatever he told me to do Mm -hmm. Um, and then when we got to the recording session it turned out that I was the only one he would talk to Um, he would he would be he was conducting his own his own orchestra and he would say tell Todd the mixer Todd Whitelock who did an unbelievable job um, said tell Todd that I'm gonna go again but this time and so I'd say Todd and he said yeah and then Stephen would say uh, or Marvin would say ask Stephen how that was for him so I'd turn my head and I'd make a motion and Stephen be like I I said he loves it it's great you know Um, I had to use the restroom at one point and I came back in and they said Marvin was looking for you and I I said what I said I had to go to the bathroom and he said uh, tell Todd (laughs) tell Todd I'm taking the cellos down by half and so I said it was hilarious, but um, it was the most satisfying project for me because he trusted me in a way I don't think I've ever been trusted before. I, it was a real groundbreaking job for me. I mean, it was more than running click track. You know, it was really keeping this man organized. It was uh, encouraging him occasionally. He, I was worthy enough to be asked for feedback. And what do you think of this? And I'm thinking... Who cares what I think? You know, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was a he was a wonderful man, 
great sense of humor. We had a really good time together. I miss him. Uh, and it's just so sad to me to know that I'm never going to get to work with him again uh, because it really gave my confidence a boost uh, knowing that I was very heavily responsible for a lot of what he needed. Uh, I miss him a lot. You also had an interesting position on the uh, Academy Award-winning musical Chicago where you were responsible for editing the lip sync the lip sync vocals which yeah. is so specific talk a little bit about that it's so specific and why it's necessary well i'll tell you why it's necessary i mean you know you're whether you know it or not and how seasoned you are in the inner workings of film or television or not you know when a voice does not match up with the with what you're seeing with the movement of the with mouth. the movement of the mouth the movement of the body you 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 know something's weird you may not know what is weird but you know something's off uh, so you basically need to sell it hard that these people are actually singing. Mm-hmm. When in fact, when we're making a musical, most of the time, um, it's everything is pre-recorded. The vocals are pre-recorded. The band is pre-recorded. The orchestra pre-recorded. And the actors, if they do their homework and really listen to these tracks and really work on it, they can get the lip sync pretty good. Mm-hmm. They can pretty much nail it. And and so it, it was my job, my my, uh, my colleague, Annette Kudrak, who was the supervising music editor on that job, who did a fantastic job. It was a bear of a job on Chicago. Um, she said, can you come in and just, just work on the lip sync? There's, I think there was 20 songs, mm-hmm. something like that. So that's what I did. I sat there and I moved consonants. I stretched vowels. I, I did whatever I needed to do to get this in sync with what we're looking at. And certain actor actresses were a little more challenging than others. Certain ones. Queen Latifah was a champ because she is a recording artist. She made music videos. She knows the drill. So she was she was pretty easy. Um, you know, other ones ranged from uh, tear my hair out to, you know, wanting to shoot myself. But I have to say I'm very proud of that work. Um, I'm very proud of that work because it was very time consuming. It was very, I, you have to really focus. You have to, I mean, every single ounce of concentration has to go to doing a job like that. And I was thrilled when it won Best Picture. I mean, you know, all the parts came together so beautifully. It's, it was a beautifully shot film. It sounded great. The acting was fantastic. And if that little part had failed in any way, it would have completely diminished the full impact of the film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I did was cool, but what Annette did was cool, what Gedney did was cool, what the director did was cool, what everybody did, what Danny Elfman did with the score pieces, cool. You know, but if one person is a little less than cool, whole project's less than cool. How is the process of the average feature film different from being a music editor on an ongoing series every week? Yeah, it's basically like making a quarter or a half of a feature film like once a week, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, The workflow on a television show is a lot faster. It's Mm -hmm. a lot faster. Uh, The TV shows that I have worked on... uh, Two composers come to mind, uh, Nathan Larson and Pat Irwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they did, especially Pat, what Pat did was he had extensive conversations. And this would be for what show? This would be for um, the last three seasons of Nurse Jackie, uh, for a show called Feed the Beast. Uh, he worked on the last season of Bored to Death. We worked on all of those together. Uh, and what, what Pat did that was a great 
benefit not just to me but to himself was he created basically a musical library. He spoke to the showrunner, found out what instruments the showrunner likes, uh, what kind of films the showrunner likes, what albums, what artists, just did real musical research on what this person likes, what kind of musical voice did this showrunner envision having for this show. Um, and so Pat would go back to his studio and he would basically work up, you know, he would do a, a one minute lick uh, on this kind of guitar and then he would do it on this kind of guitar and he would send all of this stuff to me mm -hmm. you know here's something that's good for a chase here's something that's good for a dream here's something that's good you know he's maybe read a couple scripts and is getting the idea of the characters does this character have swagger is this character shy you know what what is making this show and what musical accompaniment can I add mm -hmm. what layer can I add so I get these sketches that are basically demos uh, and I can cut them right in and so when we have our spotting session the showrunner might say I love that just as it is and it, it was a library piece it's it, from his library and it was perfect or they'll say I love this but can we add a little more bass to it and so we have the bones of it and all he's got to do is come in and add a little bass um, and then as we work on the show, we start compiling more of a library because cues are written specifically for these episodes, but to save time for myself, the editor, and ultimately for the composer, I can recycle these cues or repurpose them as we like to say. Maybe a cue got dropped in episode one, but that piece of music would be perfect in episode three, so I'll pull it in. Or we'll say, you know what, if we take the drum stem out of this and we take the bass out and just let this feedbacky guitar, you can repurpose things in different ways. You can use cues in different ways by doing various combinations of, of stems. And one example, uh, when I was working with Wendy and Lisa on, uh, on Nurse Jackie, I was on from seasons two through seven. They were on from uh, seasons two through four. Um, I was constantly taking apart their cues, and there was one cue that was a really great, carefree, you know, back of a motorcycle kind of cue. And when I was listening through the stems, I realized that the piano stem alone had didn't have that carefree feel, but it had almost this lamented um, feel to it, and it became a cue for Jackie and Eddie when they were seeing each other, and when you're aware that things are not working between them. And it just played this underneath lament, but if you put the rest of the, the, uh, the stems back, it was a great cue for them. It was, became a variation on a theme of them on the back of his motorcycle. It, you know, it, it was, uh, and, and it became this recurring theme. And so it took a cue off of their plate and I already had it done. And so we could all just check it off and it saved a whole lot of time. Mm -hmm. With a film, not so much. A film is a singular body of work. Um, you can recycle to a point, but you're telling a story in two hours instead of over the course of 10 weeks. Uh, and you don't want to repeat yourself too much. And more emphasis is put on the composer's work than anything I might be able to do because I'm only getting the cues as the film is coming to an end. So I don't really have much opportunity unless they make a decision at the mix to take a cue that we used in reel one and reprise it at the end of the film. But at that point, the composer would probably want to write a, a, a special cue for that part because we've come all this way in the arc of the story, the characters, the plot, whatever. 
Uh, it could be a variation on that theme, but it's not a temp score anymore. It's a, at that point, it's a real score, and so it has to be a specifically written cue that not only fits what's going on there and harkens back to what we may have heard in real one, but it's got to be more fleshed out. It has to change. And there's only so many changes I can make with what material I have. So it's a different use of, of the material. It's mm -hmm. a different way of using the material. So you've been doing this long enough mm -hmm. that you've seen big changes big. in technology. Yeah. And uh, that technology, those technological changes, I, I know from my own experience, have even changed the creative process yeah. quite a bit. Um, it's also changed um, you, the, the manpower that's involved, you know. Right. There's a lot of work that you probably do by yourself now that in the right. past there would have been a crew of two, maybe two other people helping Or at least you. an assistant, yeah. Or another assistant. Yeah. Um, talk about the difference. I mean, you really, you've been doing this long enough that you, you really started editing sprocketed magnetic tape. Yeah, and, and, and quarter-inch tape. I mean, I, I first learned how to cut music on quarter-inch tape in a radio class I took at Hofstra. Mm -hmm. um, that, that really solidified editing, you know, editing sound, you know, it was just awesome. So, uh, but yeah, so going from quarter-inch tape for the school radio station to 16-millimeter, uh, 35-millimeter, uh, um, the process is definitely <laughs> different now. I mean, that, you know, then I started working on a program called Sonic Solutions, which was an incredibly powerful editing tool, very, very complicated. Uh, and it really took a lot of brain power to learn how to use it. It was a very powerful tool. The waveform drawings were unbelievably detailed and you could really get in there down to the sample and, and really make some fine music edits where on mag that may not have been possible. You have a quarter, you have increments of a quarter of a frame. And digitally, how many samples go into a quarter of a frame? You know, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, where in film you can only get down to a quarter frame or a perf, you can get down to a sample now, and you can make some edits that are just, you never would have been able to do them back in the days of MAG. I mean, they happened, and they may have worked or they may not have. Uh, and there were tricks, you know, you could split a piece of music onto two sets of, of, uh, of MAG and have them crossfade at a certain point and do some work in the final mix to massage it and make it really work. But now you don't have to do that anymore. Um, another thing that it's allowed us to do is to take cues apart. You know, when we have stems, uh, like I was talking about earlier, you can mix and match. You know, I like the beat from this cue and I like the pad from this cue and I like the feedbacky guitar from this cue. I'm gonna put all those together. And if I don't like them, no material was wasted. Um, I can hit undo at any moment. You know, when, you know, an undo on mag is traumatic because you have to take. You made a cut, you know, and you have to take the. You have to take the tape off, and what if you put a magnetic pop in there, and you know, you have to put the thing back together again. You have to start from scratch, and it's perf, 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 and it's got tape, and then you got to retransfer it. The whole thing. I mean, it just was so time-consuming and so awful. Um, but what it did give us was time. And I think that's the thing I miss the most is that we were given time because this was a physical medium that we had to cut and we had to physically cut it. Like there was a first aid kit in every editing room because we had to cut things with blades. Um, and it was respected and honored and understood that we needed time 
we needed time to rewind things, you know. And, it, you know, when you're using a flatbed and you run a reel through while it's rewinding, you can think in that 20 minutes about what you had just seen. And everything has just gotten so much faster, so much more immediate, and the expectancy of immediacy is pervasive now. It, it's, it, it, there's just no putting the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. Um, humans need time to think and process and experiment and really work things to get it right, whether it's on a computer or on mag, but now everything's on a computer. So now they want to see seven versions of something where it used to be you would audition a few things and then you'd make a decision and you'd cut one thing and then that was it. Um, I don't have an I haven't had an assistant probably since 2001. I, I can't, I think I was working on a mammoth film and I had an assistant for a couple weeks. Um, I, I just, I, I, it's easier for me to just do it myself now because I know what needs to be done. I know the time constraints. Um, we have such tiny crews now and there's very little team building mm -hmm. and you know, I'll go into my sound editor and I'll say, are you doing something here? There's an awkward music transition here. He said, oh, yeah, I've got a crowd over that. Don't worry about that. You know, this is these are things we need to know. Mm -hmm. Because if he said, no, I don't have anything there, then I'm going to have to figure out a way to make this even more elegant than I already did. Yeah, it, it is interesting that I think for people who, in, in all aspects of editing and post-production, who started in the way that you did mm -hmm. um, with f physical editing and, 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 and uh, a lot of material that needed to be organized properly. Right. There was a whole workflow that went into it and it had a reason mm -hmm. for being. And it seems that um, with that kind of a background com coming to the new technology, if you have an understanding of how to organize the work, it, it all makes sense, and, it, and it's, a, it's a better workflow. That seems uh, to be something that is useful information to pass right. on, too. That, that, whereas um, it, it's what's amazing and fantastic about the time that we, era that we live in is that you can have uh, this powerhouse of soft, a program like Pro Tools or, or Avid Media Composer in, in your laptop mm -hmm. and do... Uh, incredible work with it yeah um, but it's not just the the capabilities of the program but right. it's actually knowing how to think about why you're making these choices as an editor and how best to approach doing it and how to hear the other people you're working with and say because you know the mix is like a big game of compromise you know it's like well you know, the music should be a little louder here. And it's like, well, I think the sound effect should be a little louder here. You know, it, it's learning how to compromise and learning how to understand what's happening. And you know, it's, it's learning how to be, a t I hate the word team player, but it's, it's learning mm -hmm. how to be a team player. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny is that um, for the longest time in my own editing work, mm -hmm. I, uh, when in the switch to digital, I would not, so you know, I wouldn't set it so that I could see the waveforms, right? Because I found it so distracting. Right. I was so used to hearing, hearing it. the yeah. audio and just feeling and hearing where the edit should be, as mm -hmm. opposed to looking at the visual reference. Yeah, usually now, I, of course, I, I love down. it. Now yeah, I, I love it too. I mean, it's it's adding another sense, and you can get it done a little bit faster that way. But usually, when I'm listening to a piece of music and I and I need to find my spots where I'm going to cut. I actually usually just put my head down and I have my fingers on the arrow keys to, and then I'll go in and I'll just sort of, because I can, I'll fine tune and get it right up against that beat.
beat right up against that beat. But no, my ears are my are my main tool, and my foot. You know, if I uh, I trust my ears and my feet, and that's how I cut. <laughs> mm-hmm. So well, Missy, thank you for all your amazing insights. Thank you. You know, I've always loved your work. I love your vibe and your approach to the work that you do. It brings a lot, and as you said, it still is a bit about a team. And you add so much to the spirit of that team. So it's always great to, thank you, Alex. to see your work and, <laughs> thank and, you. <laughs> and get to hear you talk about it. Thanks. So thank you for doing this. really appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs>